Ready to connect with the investment community here in Cleveland? Want to learn about the people, events, projects, and firms that are making a difference? Want all that but feel like you don't have the time? This is the show for you. Welcome to Guardians of Finance. Brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland and hosted by Matt McLaughlin, Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, Guardians of Finance will provide you with a chance to foster deeper connections and know what is getting the attention of Cleveland's investment community. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland and attend an educational or social event and find volunteer opportunities. And now, here's your host, Matt McLaughlin. Welcome to the Guardians of Finance podcast. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin. In this episode, we talk with Ryan Rugard, Director of Research at Rugard & Associates. Ryan has a fascinating background that has taken him from Hudson to Southwest Ohio and to Chicago with many trips and stops along the way. While Ryan lives in Chicago, he maintains strong personal and professional connections to Cleveland. He has a wide range of hobbies and experiences, and he shares some of the best ones in today's conversation. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode with Ryan Rugard. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt, for having me on the podcast. It's delightful on this Friday to talk with you. For sure. And tell us a little about yourself. You grew up in Cleveland on the east side, is that right? Yeah. So I grew up in Hudson, Ohio, on the east side of Cleveland, and I'm the son of a financial advisor. So our firm was founded in January 1993 in my basement, essentially. And so from about four years old, I was kind of watching over dad's shoulder for tickers to go green on CNBC to go for ice cream. And that's how I got a started in, in the business and how our firm got founded. And when we first got started, my dad kind of spun off into his own firm from another firm. And he had just kind of a few million in assets and he just said the clients will come. And we uh, as a family just were on board with it. And now 30 years later, we have a firm that services over 300 plus client households and almost 300 million in assets under management. So it's been a fun journey to watch me both grow up as well as the firm grew up around me. That's great. Where did you go to high school and college? So I went to Hudson High School, a great place to grow up and raise a family. And then uh, I thought I was going to be a black sheep, go somewhere other, other than a lot of my family members. But I ended up going where a lot of them graduated from. So I'm a graduate of Miami University in Ohio, Southern Ohio. I went there because it was probably the best ROI out there. Quality of education. It's top 25 business school in the country on a regular basis in-state tuition. The campus was great. I mean, I went down at a program in high school called the Junior Scholars Program, and I ended up enjoying Miami more than I thought I would. And so I kind of applied and, and got in, uh, got good grades over the summer. And so I was like, oh, college isn't as bad as I thought it would be. And so I did have a, a fun four years there. And then uh, when I graduated in 2011, I kind of knew I would get into the business, but I knew I wanted to chart my own path. So I was kind of looking at different buy-side jobs, and I got pretty far with some pretty notable names and got a little defeated because I, here I am, this college guy, I thought I was smart. The Ivy League guys were just smarter, and that's who Fidelity and T-Row and some other guys hired in my year, and I got disappointed and thought, oh, I'm not going to get into investment management right out of school. And I ended up getting to the stroke of luck working for Driehaus Capital Management in uh, Chicago on their international team to get kind of my start. It's very unusual to get into the business that investment management on the research side 
that way right out of school. And so I was just fortunate that I did enough interviews and talked to enough people and kind of knew enough uh, to get in the door. That's an interesting story. So did you know growing up, obviously you grew up in a family of a financial advisor that 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 is what you wanted your career path or where you wanted your career path to go? Or is that something you discovered along the way somewhere? It was kind of discovered a little bit along the way. I would say really in high school, I kind of cemented the feeling that I would go that route just simply because when I got my first job at Subway in Hudson at 14, my parents used to take part of my paycheck and put it into an investment account. And then I could invest money, but the, the paycheck had to go in there. And so I got investing in stocks 20 years ago now, personally. So that's kind of what got me started. And then I was like, oh, this is fun. There's research companies and, and see what works and what doesn't. So I got my start right after the tech bubble, kind of in 2003, in investing and compounded well. And I was like, oh, this is kind of a fun job. No two days are the, the same. You learn a lot from it because you're talking to lots of different industry groups. And so I would drive by businesses on the highway and I'd be like, oh, what do they do? Like a perfect example is like driving through Columbus. You can't miss the Mettler Toledo office off of the highway. And that was one of the first companies that I, based on, hey, this company's there. They seem to be doing well, expanding. And then I got to know the, the company and invested and the the shares went up. And so that's one example of kind of how it's compounded and snowballed into the, the actual career path, if you will. Because it's not, to me, it's not really working. I, it's kind of a fun dynamic role to be able to learn uh, what's going on around the world. Yeah, for sure. Now, did you get to invest in companies that you knew, that like the brands you knew? Or did your dad or family members help you say, oh, no, let's try this Bettler Toledo thing because they're maybe a little more conservative kind of investment? No, it was kind of up to me. And they maybe gave me some guardrails and stuff like that. But if I wanted to invest in whatever it was, I did that. And when I went, went to on the Treehouse, I started investing in interna international stocks and turned my account into an international investment account and was investing in foreign countries and, and small companies nobody had ever heard of. And oftentimes when I met with some of those early companies, they're like, oh, you're the first U.S. investor we've ever talked to in, in years. And so it's kind of a cool feeling when you're kind of on an island and you're not like the only U.S. investor. A lot of these companies have local investors in Germany or France or whatever that they regularly talk to. But a U.S. person investing in some of these small foreign companies was pretty exotic even just 12 years ago. For sure. Now, did you want to end up in Chicago? Or you, you, know, you mentioned T. Rowe and maybe some other firms. Like, Were you looking outside? Yeah. So I definitely looked all over, I think, the country when I got my uh, start. So I don't think it was limited. I just thought that the Midwest was going to be kind of ideal because my parents, obviously, I was raised back in Cleveland, didn't really want to leave the Midwest to go to do the New York route because I felt like and they're not quite the Midwest folks that are out there. And so I just wanted to be close to family, but still have the professional career opportunities. And that's what brought me to Chicago. And I also didn't really totally get the pick. When you kind of are looking around the job market, you're trying to figure out where, where I can go. So, I mean, I considered Boston, I considered San Fran, LA, and talked with firms in many of those cities, but it was ultimately Chicago that brought me here. And it's actually where my dad's side of the family is originally from. So my grandparents are... The one is fresh off the boat to Chicago and the other came from North Dakota to Chicago. So it kind of had already been not a, maybe a second home, but my grandparents grew up in the suburbs here. And so I was familiar with it and close enough to home and got the role that I kind of wanted to do. And so I got my start here. And that's actually how we met. 
I think that's a cool part of that. So playing on the CFA Society kickball team that we started uh, in 2014. I don't remember what years you were on the team specifically because I've been on it uh, so many years now, but that's actually how we met. And I met a lot of great people here in Chicago. I was hoping that story was going to come out because we, we did have a pretty mean kickball team. I think it was 2014, actually, because I had just moved back from Boston and, and it was like, oh, I'll just join the kickball team. Uh, yeah, we, we met and there were some some good people there. And when I, when I say we were we were decent, I think we were maybe maybe average to below average, but it was fun. And I think that's uh, you know what we're hoping to do here in Cleveland is foster those connections and whatnot. So you can see those, those connections last for a while. So that's fun to bring up. Shout out to the CFA Society of Chicago for putting that together originally, because that was not my idea. I just kind of signed up and was and showed up all the time and uh, stayed on the team throughout the, the years. But yeah, I mean, when you regularly see people week in, week out, you build actual relationships and, and they last. Is that still going now? Do they still have the kickball team? Yeah, they still have the kickball team. Uh, it took us a little while post-COVID just to kind of get organized around and have enough people that we're comfortable with hanging out and interacting with new people. Sure. That's good to hear. So take us a little bit through. So you start off at Dre House. Where'd you go from there and kind of take us through your little bit your career progression from there? Yeah. So started out there working on their international team focused on mainly Japan and Europe. So waking up at early hours of morning to talk with companies in Europe, staying late, to get on calls with Japanese companies. Not exclusively those. I also talked with places in Australia, New Zealand, but generally doing developed international markets for them and focused on tech and healthcare and consumer companies. So I kind of had that narrow focus of industries, but working within a broader team. And that was going well for about a, a little over a year. And then we had one of our institutional investors pull money from us. And they kind of said, hey, we need to make some cutbacks because of this. And uh, it was nice knowing and meeting you. And so very quickly into my career, I was shown the door, no fault of my own, and kind of had to reinvent myself. So I actually went back to work for Regarding Associates, my family's firm, for about two years. And that, that was a great experience. And I was commuting back and forth between Cleveland and Chicago because there wasn't all these remote options. You couldn't get on a Zoom call back then. If you wanted to meet a client meetings in person in Cleveland. And so I had to kind of figure out how to make that work and made it work for two years, but it's pretty hard commuting regularly back and forth on an almost weekly basis. So did that. And then I kind of said, hey, I want to branch out, do my own thing still. I got hired by Credit Suisse on their Holt team, which is kind of an investment framework that the Credit Suisse bought in their early 2000s. That really helps uh, investors look at cash flow return on investment and compare that equally across the world. And so we had teams kind of across the world, but I was still based in Chicago. And I'm in a mainly research role, but also in kind of a sales role, dealing with institutional investors as clients. So working on the sell side of the coin, talking with buy side investors about how they're making their decisions and acting as a consultant, mainly in investment process. How are they going about picking companies, how are they deciding what is quality, what is valuation, and how those factors play in. So it's kind of it was an interesting role because it was not just the fundamentals of companies, it was also quantitatively based. And how do you marry those two together to make better investment decisions? And so I worked for them for about almost four years, working with different sector groups, 
working with the investment strategy team. And then Credit Suisse had its own struggles. And obviously, in the past few months here, they've really had their struggles. But even back in 2018, they had kind of trying to right-size the ship. I got put out the pasture as part of that restructuring. But they gave me a good compensation package exiting there. So I traveled the world for the rest of 2018. Still was investing in all these small foreign companies that no one's ever heard of. Then I got hired here in Chicago by a small registered investment advisor called Bard Associates. They managed about $300 million for mostly private net worth clients. They are focused on microcap. And so I had all this experience in micro and small cap. So they love that I could bring that research element to them. So it sounds like you've had a lot of experience with investing in international companies, in particular small cap international companies. What are some big differences that jump out with you when you're investing, say, a Japanese small cap to a European small cap or even a a US-based small cap? What are your thoughts there? I think there's so many ways that I can kind of take this, but I think that the biggest thing is the cultural differences and not only how companies are run, but how company investors perceive companies are run. So there's kind of two avenues on this. So on the business side, generally speaking, the foreign companies are run, I think personally, with a little bit more of a long-term focus because they do not report on a quarterly basis. They generally report in halves. So their management teams tend to be more focused on long-term opportunities, but they also tend to be a little bit more conservative in changing how the company is oriented. I think the U.S. is a very dynamic market that if the economic picture changes, a lot of small companies in the U.S. change on a dime. That's not the same case with the international companies. They take a little bit more time. They're a little bit more tactical with how they change. And then they also don't normally pursue these same inorganic growth opportunities that some of these small businesses in the U.S. do at building economies of scale. The other half of that would be the investor perception. And the investor perception, depending on what market you're in, is very important. Some European investors will not invest in companies unless they're paying a dividend, for instance. But in the U.S., it's not every company in the U.S. doesn't pay a dividend. So we're often fine investing in companies that are reinvesting for that growth. Or in Japan, there are certain trading philosophies because a lot of actual households in Japan invest in the local market and trade the local market. I mean, that's been going on for years. And so their investment horizon might be different than mine. They might have a shorter term investment horizon and my investment horizon might be more longer term. And so that kind of creates differences, but it also creates different trading patterns across how companies' news is perceived. And I think the other thing is when you get down to the size, there are so much more local investors invested in these companies So many of the materials are not in U.S. and English for that matter. You see a lot of things in foreign languages and you kind of have to be able to understand what's going on either by asking local experts or by learning some of these languages, whether I've learned some of the European ones, to be able to invest in these markets overall. Now, you said you were able to travel a little bit and, and you had a year after you had already started your career. I feel like that's becoming more and more prevalent with younger people today is that they'll take some time and travel and, and maybe decades back that wasn't as prevalent. One, tell us about your travels in that year. I'd love, love to hear about it. And two, just love to, to hear what, if any, benefits that you got from that, from just leisurely traveling throughout the world. I think the biggest benefit overall was I got a pause and I got time to think about what I wanted to do with my 
career and whether I was going on the right path with where I wanted to be going. And I didn't have the financial circumstances or pressure that I had to immediately go back to work or find a job. So I think that was a great time of reflection for me to make sure that, hey, is this investing career what I'm wanting to do? Am I taking it in the right path? And I definitely wanted to get back to the the buy side of the coin because I realized, hey, it is much more fun when you're actually putting money at risk and you're seeing the results and hard work that you put in on the research process come to fruition. When you're investing with institutional clients, you don't always get to see whether you're in, how you're impacting their investment process, how they decide to do things, because sometimes they are a little bit of a black box and don't like to tell everyone how they're kind of doing things internally. So you can talk about things and you can obviously make an impact because you, you build that client relationship, but it's not the same as being a, a principled investor on the buy side of it. And so I got time to think about that. And then I think the other thing is internationally, I just got time off. I got to go more places than I maybe would in a particular year. And I think that was particularly helpful for me to reinforce that, hey, a lot of the, there is a lot of opportunity outside of the U.S., but there's also opportunity inside the U.S. So when I moved to Bard in 2019, they were mainly U.S. microcap focused. So I've kind of done international, I've done U.S., I've done micro and small, I've done it quantitatively, I've done it fundamentally. So I bring like a whole different toolbox to the investment world. And I think that's part of the benefit of my career path. I did not intend it to be that way that I have all these different skill sets that combine into one investment process, if you will. What was your favorite place in those travels? And, and maybe, I don't say you disliked it, but a least favorite place just from a recreational perspective. Well, I have to say the place that was the most eye-opening was going to Africa in that time frame, because that's when I went to Tanzania and Kenya. And so I actually went on safari and we flew into Arusha and then we did the whole Lion King thing basically tracking around to where all the animals are migrating. So we went through the Masai Mara, we crossed the Mara River. So if you ever watched the Lion King, when they're making the whole migration, they're going through that river. That's the Mara River that separates the Tanzania and Kenyan border. So to actually get to see it. And, you know, you go to a zoo and you see like a zebra and you're like, oh, that's so cool. But when you see hundreds of them, you have this totally different perspective on like what it means about mother nature. You're like, holy cow. Or we went to this other park called Ambiacelli and it's mainly in the water. And I saw thousands of flamingos. I've never seen more flamingos in my life. Like you could go almost 360 degrees and you could not, it was hard not to see a flamingo in the water and they're just everywhere. And when here in the US, if you go to zoo, you maybe see like four or five and you're like, oh, that's cool. But like to see the sheer numbers of them was impressive. And we got some opportunities also up close, not intentional, but we were watching uh, this, these leopards in the tree. And then they hopped out of the tree, ran towards our, straight towards our vehicle. And we we're like, oh shit, the leopards are coming for us. And the guide was like, that's not a good thing. And, <laughs> and we were like, why? The leopards totally dodged us. And we we're like, oh, phew, sigh of relief. But he goes, that means there's lionesses nearby. And then like within like two minutes, we got a female lion and it's just like rubbing up against the, the truck. And you're like watching these animals and a female lion is just jacked. It looks like they went to the gym, like just full, full, like arm built out. You're like, 
has so much respect for, for nature there. So you got the nature part. And then when you, when we got into Nairobi, I mean, it's a totally different world. First off, people don't understand crossing the street is dangerous. So people will just actively cross in the active road, cars going 45, 50 miles an hour. And you're like, this is a highway. Imagine someone walking onto the highway and crossing a highway and not understanding that it's dangerous. So just, it really gave me the second, hey, like not everyone has the same perception of what you've learned through your environment. That's great. And maybe your least favorite or a place you would go back to or wouldn't be, wouldn't be high on your list? I don't want to throw any under the, okay, under the bus okay. because yeah. I think it's great to get out there in the, the world and I wish more people did it and could understand perspectives in the world. I think it definitely travel gives you a huge leg up on perspective. Only about, I think it's one out of every 10 U.S. citizens has an active passport. So you're talking about 30 million people that have maybe have a passport. Maybe they've been to Canada or Mexico, even though they don't require the passport if you have a U.S. ID. But there's a very limited sector of our country that's been outside and sort of knows how the rest of the world lives. I watched the stick huts in Kenya, but they still all have mobile phones. They just send the kid to school with the mobile phone to charge it. And so when you go into school in Kenya... There's 20 phones plugged into one outlet. Wow. And you've never seen anything like that, but they still get around. I mean, they moved entire couches on scooters and people pay with Mbase, which was like before there was Venmo. So, I mean, it's it's pretty cool to uh, be able to see that these societies, even though we in the U.S. maybe think they're not like this developed nation, they're, they still have all the some of the modern conveniences that we have in the developed world. They just have maybe a different perspective on life and maybe they don't have the same opportunities that we do, but they still figure out how to make it work. Sure. So you get back, you get a job at Bard, and then you eventually went back and this is where you and I reconnected. You're back involved in the, in the family business. So tell us a little about that. Yeah. So at Bard, I left on great terms. Tim Johnson, who runs the firm, I have a lot of respect for him, but it, it kind of got to the point where I was like, hey, I kind of want to be doing my own thing. I don't want to be working for someone else, like want to be able to build something. And so it was around the same time that my dad was thinking about succession planning and he had been in talks with other private equity firms about the sale of our firm potentially. And he just said, hey, there are firms out there that are interested, but I feel like I'm selling my friends because a lot of our clients have been with us for decades not just you know, one, one year or two years. We have multi-decade relationships. We have multi-generational relationships. So we have all the way up to like the grandparents down with kids being their financial advisors. So we kind of met in the middle, if you will. It was like, hey, I want to be able to build something. Hey, I want someone that's going to take care of our clients long-term. And so it, it kind of made sense to come back at that point in time. And I had the financial currency to be able to actually do so. Now I got the friends and family maybe price, but I put real money into the firm to be able to get where I'm at and, and continue to build upon that. So I have, we have four partners, Randy, my father. We have John May, who's based out of the Cleveland office, who joined our firm five years ago and joined uh, as a partner about two years ago. And then at the beginning of the year, we brought on David Sleater, who's based here in Chicago, who I've known through CFA Chicago for many years. He was on our kickball team originally 10 plus years ago. So we developed a relationship and our families had a similar outlook on life and similar 
similarly run businesses. And so we combined forces at the beginning of the year and did the first inorganic transaction, M&A transaction for Rootgarden Associates in our 30-year history on our 30th birthday, basically. Oh, cool. How is the uh, integration going? I mean, I'm sure there's some challenges, but I guess if you, maybe if you have a similar philosophy, maybe there's less, less than you would think, but talk a little about that. Yeah. I mean, the biggest challenge is the unknown, the things that you don't know doing an M&A transaction and have to figure out legal compliance. And then even with custodians like opening, we, we brought over probably about almost 100 households with 250 separate registrations. So big team lift to not have work together, but to figure out how to work together as a team to be able to accomplish that. And we're well ahead of the ball. Like everyone else that I've talked to in industry is like, you guys moved all that and did all the legal, all the compliance, all the integration of billing statements, everything. One quarter. Wow. So we're pretty proud of our little eight-person team. Sure, sure. Now, do you get back to Cleveland pretty frequently? I think you mentioned that you're in Chicago. I literally just got off the plane back to Chicago. I was on the 1104 flight Eastern time today. So I was in Cleveland earlier this week. And so, yes, I'm, I'm back on a pretty regular basis. Not every month, but almost every month I'm back at least a week meeting with clients directly or just working with our team on strategic projects, just kind of depends. But we do have the two offices now. So we do have an official office in Oak Brook, as well as we have an office uh, based in Twinsburg, Ohio, just over the Hudson border off of 91. So what's the future hold for Rugard and Associates? Obviously, you know, you're an owner of the business now, and I'm sure you have a vision. And what's it look like? What do you have planned? I think it's more a continuation of the same. I mean, our clients rely on us for holistic financial planning. So we are not just the investment guys. We are not just giving tax advice because we do have CPAs on staff. We do prepare tax returns for our client, for a portion of our clients. And we also give tax advice on the relation on the back of the investment. So we are driven by after-tax investment performance. But we also give holistic financial planning advice from HSAs to 529s to home purchases and a client emails today. He's excited about buying a home. So we walk through that whole process as a, as a bundle wrapper. And it's just the way that financial advice should be given. Kind of comparing and contrasting here. What is your favorite thing about Cleveland? And maybe what's your favorite thing about Chicago? What, what keeps you going back there? And at least, at least some sort of roots there as well. Yeah, I think in Cleveland, I had the benefit always of growing up next to Cuyahoga Valley National Park. So I love all the biking trails down there. And I will typically bike all the way up to uh, Cleveland in the summer. And I love going downtown. I'll go to a garden. Well, I got to say Guardians. I mean, I still say Indians on a regular basis. And I remember as a kid going to all those games. So I'm still a baseball fan. And yes, you can be a Cleveland Guardians fan and a Chicago Cubs fan. They are in the AL and the NL, so you can have separation of, of team franchises. And it wasn't very hard. Maybe not in 2016. Yeah, maybe 2016 <laughs> uh, would have been a little more difficult. No, I mean, I, I get back a lot and I enjoy. went to the Winking Blizzard earlier this week, which is one of my favorite bars and taverns for the, the Wings. If you haven't been there, highly recommend. So, I mean, there are parts I love about Cleveland, but Chicago has been good to me on the career side. You know, it gave me the opportunities out of the gate that maybe Cleveland didn't have when I graduated. I, Cleveland is more happening than today, I think, than in 2011. For sure. Sure. 
So maybe you're ready for a little fun lightning round, more lighthearted kind of questions. Sure. All right. Do you have a nickname? I do not, because uh, generally speaking, my parents both had nicknames. So they tried to name me Ryan because it's not really nicknameable. <laughs> Some people will call me Rye, but it's it's very few and very far in between because it is a such a short name. <laughs> you mentioned your maybe your favorite hobby here in Cleveland is the bike trails. Talk about this favorite hobby in Chicago. I would also say the biking. We have what we call the Divi bike, which is a ride share bike. So you can kind of pick them up anywhere in the city. And uh, last summer, I did probably a thousand miles, according to the uh, the Divi account, because they do track with GPS how you ride around and and go places to see. So that's my favorite, probably pastime hobby, being outdoors. I would say the other hobby that I have if I go downstairs in my house here is I do have a fairly impressive guitar collection and regularly play. And that's sort of how I relieve stress at the end of the day from investing. People say, why don't you get trust about all going on in markets. I just go downstairs and play music. That's sort of how I unwind. What's on the playlist right now? Mainly it's been like 70s and 80s rock. And my neighbors like it on Fridays because they say I'm very motivational at the end of the day when I flick on the amp, typically between 3 and and 4 p.m. Central right after the market closes and I'm just jamming out and they're finishing up their day. I live in a three flat, so my, uh, my, my neighbors downstairs can hear me play and I can hear them singing along to the songs. It's pretty funny. <laughs> that's 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 funny. Favorite book about investing or finance? I have to go with the original. I've had this copy for a long time. It's a little dry, but uh, this is definitely one that I go back to on a, a fairly regular basis because uh, he just had so many ideas that were before his time. And if you actually cut... They won't see this uh, on video. We're on, we're on Zoom. So he held up the intelligent investor. And uh, so, you know, it, it, Graham had ideas that I thought were well in advance of his time. And, and if you actually read the book and you read the tea leaves, I don't think he's totally a value investor. I don't think he's the garbot totally there. I, if, if you read through, he was much more a quality investor than people, I think, give him credit for profession you would be in if it wasn't investing or finance? I'd be a musician. It would be a little stressful though. I think that's the, my separation of church and state a little bit was uh, not pursuing a music career because I had friends that went to the Berkeley School of Music when I was growing up and I played guitar with them and did pretty well, but I could play pretty well, but I never wanted to give up that passion and that love of music to make a paycheck. So I took the alternate route of something that could make me money and also have a hobby that could relieve the stress of my career. This is going to be a tough question, I think, because you've had so many travels, but what's your bucket list travel destination right now? Ooh, well, I keep trying to get to Japan. And every time I try to go to Japan, something happens. So they had the Fukushima earthquake They had missiles shot in the Sea of Japan. Just other things have gotten in the way. So it's kind of the one that's been slightly elusive for me to get over to. So I'm still itching to to do that. What's your favorite lunch spot in Cleveland? And then I'll give you kind of an extra. Where should someone go from Cleveland if they come into Chicago? What's your one restaurant you'd send them to? Ooh, I can't pick just one. I think this is too hard of a question. And I'm going to punt on this one just simply because 
I love all types of food. So if, if you kind of know me, I'm not like a one particular food group. I did mention the Winky Lizard Tavern in Cleveland earlier in the podcast. If you have not had their wings, I think you need to go there and you need to try them out because they have the full flavor profile. And I think they're better than Buffalo Wild Wings by far. Your advisor, the 60-40 portfolio, a classic or a relic? It is a classic. It is not a relic. Last year was a pretty big anomaly of a year. And you could have said 60-40 was dead in the 80s too. I mean, you look at when they last did, uh, the Federal Reserve last did major interest rate hikes and what happened to the bonds during that period, and you could have said it was dead, but then it was actually a very good portfolio through the late 80s into the most of the 2000s up until last year. So there are times where it doesn't work. It's unfortunate that way, but in most years, it does pretty well, and it's, I think, going to probably recover. On the bond side specifically, Last year, obviously hurt in the prices, but when you look at where yields are today, how can you not be excited about the 60-40 portfolio when bonds are that 40% are actually going to contribute? I mean, they, they've they been contributing 1% for the last 15 years. I mean, if you go back to the financial crisis, most of my career, they haven't been pulling their weight in a 60-40 portfolio. Well, now they're going to pull their own weight. And yeah, equities might be not pulling at the same speed, but America saunders on. We've had a very good economic development compared to the, the rest of the world, and I don't see that ending. And as Warren Buffett always say to, says, don't bet against America. Last but definitely not least, most memorable Cleveland sports moment. Ooh, memorable Cleveland sports moment. I went to the AL Central division games in 1997 and had the hat downstairs to prove it. So I think that was a big time and got Jim Tomey's autograph, Manny Ramirez's autograph back in the day and have the baseballs downstairs. So that's the classic, uh, classic moment for me, you know, and they didn't quite make it out though, that, uh, that faithful season, but uh, very good memories from all that. I like it. We're only a few episodes into this podcast, but that one has not been brought up yet. And that's got to be a a fond memory for many, even though they didn't win the World Series. That was a good time for Cleveland Indians baseball. Come on, growing up in Cleveland in that era, you you were excited. (laughs) There was no one that wasn't excited in town. And like that was kind of the classic era. The team was good for that mid-90s stretch. I mean, all those guys went on to have major careers in other places too. That was the Cleveland team. I was not born and raised in Cleveland, but I still remember Albert Bell and Kenny Lofton and those guys. That was a a fun team to watch, even thinking about it from someone not from Cleveland. I think we beat the White Sox a fair bit during that uh, period. So when Jim told me left to go to the White Sox, I think everyone was disappointed in Cleveland. (laughs) Sure. Well, Ryan, that's all the, the questions I have. Thanks for joining the podcast. It's been fun talking with you and catching up a little bit. We hope you come to a CFA Cleveland event when you're back in town sometime. And we'd love to have you get more involved in community here as much as you are in, in the Chicago CFA Society. Sounds great to me. I'll see you guys around then. Thanks, Ryan. You've been listening to Guardians of Finance, brought to you by the CFA Society of Cleveland. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform and head on over to guardiansoffinance.com where you can connect or reconnect with the CFA Society of Cleveland, attend an educational or social event, and find volunteer opportunities. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Guardians of Finance.